Wow, wow, wow. This is a, uh, so full house tonight. Happy Easter for those of you that may be new. Uh, I'm Pastor Jordan, the lead pastor of River House. We're really grateful that you're here tonight. And uh, as we, we just sang, uh, we're here because of the name of Jesus and that this Jewish man, Jesus, raised from the dead uh, 2,000 years ago and uh, authored in his resurrection a new way of living life, uh, of a transformed existence on this planet that no eye had seen or ear had heard before he inaugurated, inaugurated the God reality coming into earth. And the message of Jesus is an invitation to live this resurrected life. And uh, you know, many of us I know have heard the Easter message, and I was in prayer maybe week and a half ago, and I actually wasn't even praying about Easter, but in, in this time of prayer, the Lord uh, just spoke to me so clearly. I literally started laughing. I was alone in my living room because it was just so clear, and he said, hey, I don't, I don't want you to preach about the resurrection tonight. He said, I just want you to let people testify of the power of the resurrection in their lives. Uh, the, the, the amazing thing about the resurrection of Jesus is that what has authenticated it is that for the last 2,000 years, there have been millions upon millions of people that have entered into the kingdom of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and lived an entirely new existence, free from the bondage of sin. Stories have been rewritten, lives have been changed, uh, and, and that's why we're here tonight. And so uh, I have three individuals in our community, uh, very beloved individuals to my heart, to many of you, uh, that I've asked them to come share just a piece of the God story of what the message of Jesus and what the resurrection has accomplished in their life. Uh, and so they're each gonna share and just testify and give glory to the resurrected Jesus who stepped into their broken lives and made all things new, amen? So uh, when people are called out to come share, we're gonna do the River House thing, we're gonna honor them, we're gonna ex get excited, and then we're gonna let them testify to the power of the resurrection. And so Jesus, even as we start this night, we thank you that the same power that rose you from the dead is here tonight in this room by your Holy Spirit. And we say, God, let these testimonies be true witnesses to your resurrection and do it again, right here and right now. Do it again, step into this room and loose your power into every heart and to every ear that hears, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, first testimony tonight, uh, is Pastor Robin, who also is my mother. Let's honor her as she comes to share with us tonight. Love ya. Thank you. Well, I was born into a family that had 11 children. And no, I was not Mormon and Catholic. Everybody asked that, but I, I wasn't. And I was the 10th of the 11, and I was the first girl after seven wild, rowdy boys. Ha! Huh. And there was nothing typical about my house or my family. Because you see, we were all 11 from the same father, but we had four different mothers. And there were a few other women involved in that as well. But that is an entirely different story. I'll let you think about that. We lived in the big house up on the hill and everybody knew us, especially the local police. We were known well. They knew every one of my brother's names. 
And our house was not typical because everybody in it was very wounded, broken, and emotionally bleeding. And not just my immediate family, but I'm talking aunts, uncles, cousins, nephews, grandparents. Everybody turned to drugs and to alcohol to numb the pain, including me. We were the house that the parents did not want their children coming to for good reason. When I woke up every day, I may not have known exactly what was going to happen in the day, but one thing that I was always sure is that there was going to be heartache, there was going to be crisis, tears, anger, and a lot of fighting. That was a given. I remember one morning I woke up and I was walking to the kitchen through the living room and there was a loud knock on our front door and the house was filled with people and so I just walked over and opened the door and as soon as I did there were two men dressed in uniforms with what looked like machine guns holding in my face and they immediately pushed me out of the way and then they broke in every door of our house and it was actually a SWAT team looking for one of my brothers and he was there. My dad was actually in a hospital bed with a broken back in the living room, and he jumped up to try to protect my brother. And it turned into chaos. And that was common in my life growing up. We did a lot of cool things, too. My dad was a hardworking man and very successful. So we had boats and motorcycles, and we had cabins and lake houses, and we had a, exotic trips and fun things. My dad was actually also a race car driver. He uh, had a dragster, and so we used to travel all over the country getting to watch him race, which was really cool. And he held the world record for years. And so there were lots of good things but no matter where we were, no matter who we were with, or what we were doing, trouble always followed my family. You know, and I grew up seeing things that a little girl should never, ever see. I was always hunting a brother or a nephew or a niece, and I've been to many drug houses where what I saw was absolutely devastating. I went one time to a house in Hollywood that a little girl should have never, ever been in. It, I saw in that house what most people would never see in a lifetime. I grew up visiting people I loved in prisons and hospitals and rehabs. I remember going to visit an aunt in the, in the prison, and for whatever reason, this particular day, they were letting you take tours of the prison. And, for, and I was able to go into my aunt's prison cell. And I'll tell you what, I will never in my entire life forget that day. When I walked into that room, my heart was beating out of my chest because it was no bigger than my closet at home. And it was awful. But what I was consumed with was the doors, the metal doors. And I kept asking her about them. And finally she said, Robin, when I'm in my cell, those doors shut and I'm locked inside of here. And I'll tell you what, Fear entered my soul that day. And I spent most of my life scared to death that I was going to be trapped inside of a small space. Listen, I rarely ever went in elevators. For years, I wouldn't go in one. But when I did, you did not want to be in there with me. <laughs> my sons can tell you many stories. I think I traumatized them. It was scary. 
Fear was just a part of my life. It was, I was in a perpetual state of fear, and I just had to learn to live life afraid because honestly, I never felt safe growing up, ever. What I used to do to bring myself comfort and joy is I would dream about what life would be like when I had my own house and my own family. And honestly, that was all I wanted to be. I wanted to be a wife and I wanted to be a mother. And I would think of all the things that I would do to make my, my house a happy, safe home. But then I would have to come back to my reality, which was anything but happy or safe. When I was in kindergarten, I began smoking cigarettes. I even learned how to go to stores and steal them. When I was in third grade, I was smoking marijuana on a regular basis. When I was in the seventh grade, I was drinking alcohol heavily on the weekends. When I reached 13 years old, I was in a crisis. I was in deep despair and depression because there was nothing in my life that gave me any reason to want to live. And I quit school. In fact, I quit life, and I really had no desire to live. I refused to get out of my bed. And every one of my brothers and sisters, I was the 10th, everyone had dropped out of school about the same age, so if they can do it, so can I. But my mom didn't want me to. And she was worried about me, so she put me in a little Christian school down the street from my house. I was in seventh or eighth grade. It only went to the sixth grade, but somehow she got me in. And the people there were different, and I was very skeptical of them. They were too nice, too kind, too loving. But I did start going to youth group, and the youth pastor would tell us to read your Bible and to pray. Well, I didn't have a Bible, and I would try to pray. But when I did, all those things that I grew up seeing would come back to me. And it scared me. So I just got to the point where I would say the prayer, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. We all know that one. And then I would quickly go to sleep. Well, I ended up getting invited to go to church camp. And I was like a little nervous about it. Were these people like real or were they not? I wasn't quite sure. So I just decided to take a bag of marijuana just in case I needed it. <laughs> I know, I know. And yes, I got all the church kids high. <laughs> I was that girl. I'm sorry, parents out there. Please forgive me. <laughs> this is real, guys. Yeah, so... Sunday, the last day of camp, the only day I wasn't stoned out of my mind. I don't know what the pastor was preaching, but all of a sudden, something came down over me. I had no idea what it was, but I began to cry. And the only way I can describe what happened is it felt like warm oil was saturating my entire body. And all I could do was fall on my knees. And that day, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And when I prayed, I saw big, white, fluffy clouds. 
And I knew that, that my life completely changed that day. And I knew something else. I knew that I would search for this God and his love for the rest of my life. And that was 44 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> what, what I didn't know that day is that God changed the generational legacy of my life. Not only did my life change, but my sons and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren were going to have a different life than I had. So when I went home from church camp, <laughs> I was so filled with joy, something I had never known before, that my parents were worried. They thought I might be on drugs. <laughs> ha! If they only knew. Come on, parents. Not only did I graduate from high school, one of the only ones in my family that did, but I graduated from fashion college, from university, and God began to open the door to my destiny. And it was exceedingly greater than I could have ever dreamed or imagined. However, my life has not been a fairy tale. All that pain and all that trauma of my childhood was still inside of me. And I was still wounded and emotionally bleeding on the people that I loved the most the people who had nothing to do with cutting me. And eventually, I had to go back, and I had to face it all. And I also want you to know that I have walked through deep, dark seasons of great pain. But I also want you to know that I have never taken one step that he didn't take with me. And that same love that rescued me as a 13-year-old girl has walked and guided me and given me direction and has protected me and kept me safe in the midst of the great storms. And I also want you to know that today I am living the life that I used to dream about. Amen? I have the most incredible family. I sometimes think, how did I raise these children <laughs> but God? And not only do I have three amazing sons, but I have two incredible daughter-in-laws that I deeply love, and hopefully I'm going to get another one here. <laughs> <laughs> My youngest son is in college in San Diego, so he's not here today. But listen, not only did I get this incredible family, but I got this incredible family. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, River House 
is one of the greatest gifts that God has ever given me. And there are days that I wake up and I pinch myself and I say, how, how did you take that broken girl? And how can you take a divorced woman and her practically teenage son, <laughs> or a little older, <laughs> when we started, <laughs> and start a church? Only God could do that. Amen? God always has a plan, and his plan is always good. Right? So when Jordan was getting married, I was I've always been very close to him, and we built the church together. So when he got engaged, I struggled. I was like, oh, no. What is it going to look like? And I wanted to do it well. And so I went to a counselor who had helped me go back and deal with a lot of my trauma, and he knew my entire story. And after we talked about it, he was giving me advice. He then said, Robin, be thankful that this is what you're dealing with, because the truth is, your children should be visiting you in a mental institution. But the truth was, he wasn't joking. And it rocked me because it really is true. One of the greatest burdens of my life is that I have to watch my family and the destruction of drugs and alcohol. I am telling you, my favorite brother lives, he's homeless, and he lives somewhere on the streets, but we can't find him anymore. We don't even know if he's still alive. I have a brother who died on Skid Row. I have a nephew who is so strung out on drugs that he travels the country on a, on a Greyhound bus from mental hospital to mental hospital. In the last month, I have had a family member murdered. I have had an aunt who died of alcoholism. And just two days ago, right before our Easter, our Good Friday service, I got a frantic phone call from my mom. And they had found one of my nephews in a desert. And he was not alive. And he had been there for days. That's my little sister's son. And he's the same age as my son's. And I'll tell you, I am hurting for my family. I am hurting for my sister. And what I also realize is that that could have been one of my sons. But God. But God, he is the one that breathes redemption and resurrection and restoration into every area of our lives. All we have to do is say yes to him. Yes to him. Yes, I will seek you with everything that I am all the days of my life. And all we have to do is say yes, and he does the rest. And so I want you to know that we get to celebrate because God sent his one and only son to come and to take on our sin and to take on our brokenness, to take on our pain and our addictions. He wanted to take every bit of it. 
so that he could restore us to who we were created to be, so that we could live a life of abundance, a resurrected life. So we get to celebrate Jesus today. Amen? This is his day, and we want to honor him. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Amen. Amen. Just Hallelujah. Uh, next person sharing tonight is going to be uh, Pastor Ron Crowley, who's a man who's walked through uh, deep pain and uh, incredible redemption by the mercy of God. And we're honored to hear from what God is doing in this amazing man's life. going to get me started crying before I even get started here. <clears throat> I was ordained as a pastor in 1977, and I served as an assistant pastor for 18 years, and I then became the senior pastor and served for 17 years, and that all came to an ugly, screeching, horrible halt because I committed the sin of adultery. It was the darkest day of my life when I got before my congregation and admitted to them what I had done. The only bright thing in it was my beautiful wife got up and said, I forgive him, and I'd like you to forgive him also. She stood to her word, but most of them did not, unfortunately, and we entered the wilderness of our life. You don't know what it's like to be a pastor in a town for 35 years and then be afraid to even walk out the front door of your house because you're afraid that somebody might see you that knows you and knows about what you did and it was a terrible time but Athena and I focused on putting our lives back together and uh, loving each other like we had been loving each other for 40 years before so fast forward to 2017 um, I was off hunting. My wife came to Riverhouse to be here when her brother Jonathan joined the church. When I got back from the hunting trip, she said, I think you'd really like this church. So the next Sunday, we were here. And she was right. I didn't just like this church. I loved this church. <laughs> there was such a beautiful message here that uh, it just... It got me deep in my heart to the very first time I was here. I, and I couldn't really explain why. I didn't know all the reasons why. I just knew what I felt. And I knew I loved Pastor Jordan. I went home and started listening to every sermon that he'd preached so I could catch up with him on his vision and where the church was going. And, <laughs> and so the first event that I attended here of any consequence was a journey of wholeness. Wow. I, uh, they, they said that you're going to get a share if you want to share. And so I said to myself, I'm going to be the first one to share. I've got to get something off of my chest. So when that opportunity came, I got up in front of 62 people. I counted them. <laughs> because I was never one to air my dirty laundry in front of anybody, let alone 62 people. 
But basically what I did is I said, if you remember in school the story of the Scarlet Letter and Hester Prine, after she was caught in adultery, everywhere she went, she had to have a big A on her chest. And I said, that's me. Everywhere I go, I feel like I have an A on my chest. I just feel so much shame. I just, I feel like that everything God had planned had been ruined by my sin. And I knew God's forgiveness. I understand the Bible. I've preached it thousands of times. And I tell everybody to accept God's forgiveness, but I couldn't somehow accept it for myself. I was so unhappy with myself and so angry at myself. But after I confessed that there, they did kind of like what you did when I first came out here. They, they kind of started clapping and cheering, and it was like, wow. They, they don't hate me. They're, they're not embarrassed to be around me. And uh, Pastor Jordan came to me and he said, you'll never be judged here by what you did in the past. So, how did I get to where I was? It was a, because there still was a great battle that was going on in my mind. And after I had fallen, I went to all kinds of classes about sexual addiction and everything else. And I learned a lot of stuff, but nothing that really, like, revolutionized me. But the story of my life was my mother divorced my father when I was one and a half. He loved me, held me, kissed me, hugged me, but he was an alcoholic. She married another man on the same day that the divorce was final. He didn't hug me or hold me or kiss me or hug me, and he had an anger problem. And within a short amount of time, when he got established as the disciplinarian of the family, I was being beaten in ways that put people in prison today. So what do little boys do or little girls do in that environment? They become fantasizers. You have to create a world that you can live in and be happy in. And so I did. My little world was cowboys and Indians. I was at that age and at that time in history, I read all the 921s in the church library, which are all, you know, David Crockett, uh, Daniel Brune, all of those folks. And that was my life. We lived on a farm, and I just was a little cowboy that was saving people and rescuing people. That worked great until age 10. I was in Nampa. My mom had four sisters all in Nampa, and she went to visit them, and I got dropped off with all the boy cousins, a number of them older than me, and out came a Playboy magazine. I had never seen a naked woman in my life. I had never had a sexual thought in my life at age 10. I lived on a farm. You know, we milked cows and mowed hay and Irrigated, and you know, we just lived. I, I mean, it just wasn't a part of my life. And somehow, that empty space inside of me that was created by what I'd gone through—that that sexual image just invaded that. And it was like—I mean, I'm ashamed to say this—but the next Monday, as I was walking to school, I was trying to imagine what my fourth-grade partners in school girls looked like naked because of what had happened in that event. And I, I struggled with it basically for 50 years. Those images invaded my mind, and I struggled. I'd have times where I would have some victory, but it was always there. And then when the right circumstance came along, those images plus the right circumstances 
opened up into an affair that destroyed my life almost. So now let's fast forward back to this year. Deep waters. I'm so thankful for this class. In this class, we were talking, uh, this was like probably the last part of January, about attachment love and what that does for children, 0 to 24, if they are looking into the eyes of loving parents and being held and, and how that creates in them the ability to love deeply. And, and I realized, just, wow, this is part of the reason I'm broken because I didn't have that. Uh, or I had it for a little bit and it got ripped away from me and was replaced with just the opposite. So I began to understand that. And then we were talking about uh, the power of the subconscious and that 90 to 95% of what we do every day is pretty much dictated by our subconscious. We don't have to clearly think it out like you're planning a business meeting or something that you'd use your prefrontal cortex. You just kind of live your life because you've done it so many times. And, you know, I don't know what was going on with the rest of the people in the class, but for me, an incredible revelation was occurring. It was like a lightning bolt from heaven went into my brain and I saw this is me. There's a deep rut in my life that entered. It started when I was one and a half years old when I started fantasizing to stay happy with myself. And then it got really bad at age 10 when sexual images entered into it. And of course, through life, uh, I embellished those sexual Im images at different times and in different ways and made it worse and worse and worse. But anyway, I just realized how... Um, powerful the subconscious is. It's like a rut. It, it can get so deep. And I had tried to crawl out of that rut so many times in 50 years, prayed to God, thought I was delivered, go for a while, and then be right back with that going on in my mind. And so that night, I just, uh, as I left the class, I just, I couldn't get that thought out of my mind. And I went to bed. I didn't go to sleep till about 2 a.m. that night. I would just reliving what we were thinking about and talking about in my life. And all of a sudden, I just, this prayer erupted out of me. I said, Lord, I need you to invade my subconscious. That was all I said. That was all the prayer that I prayed. I went to sleep, got up the next day. It was Friday. I don't know what I did. I worked on Saturday. I probably worked in the yard. Sunday, we were in the kitchen making breakfast. And it just hit me. I said to Athena, Athena, I have not had a sexual thought for three days. Not a single thing has tried to invade my brain for three days. And it stayed that way. For about 10 days, I lived in the most incredible bliss of not even having to say no to a temptation, let alone trying to say no and failing. God slowly took the protective cover away, but he replaced uh, what was missing in my life with a grace to say no. It used to be when I say no, the devil would just say, well, here's another picture. Look at that one. But now when I say no, it means no, and he goes away. And so it's just, it's so incredible to realize that I can say no to something that I couldn't say no to for 50 years. Now, it just, and it's totally revolutionized my life. I mean, my prayer life has has changed. I, I realized so many things out of this transformation. I realized that I didn't pray a lot because I was guilty all the time about the thoughts that were going through my head. I would tell Athena, you're the prayer warrior in this family. You, you pray. 
And uh, I mean, you do the intercession. I mean, I could pray and I did pray a lot. I mean, you're a pastor, you have to pray, right? <laughs> but it wasn't like I had this wonderful life of prayer. Like Jordan talked about him. I was so envious of what he did as a young person. And I saw so many things that, wow, if I'd have just had that kind of determination, what difference it would have made, you know? And so, but anyway, with all these thoughts gone, I actually like to pray. I want to pray. My alarm goes off at 5 a.m. every morning, and my body sometimes says, don't get up, but my spirit says, I can't wait. And I've been journaling. Another thing I hated to do all my life, I just, when pastors or teachers or anybody say you need to journal, it was just like I would choke. <laughs> but I've actually been journaling. And I actually look forward to journaling now because it's like where I can tell God how I'm feeling and, and what he's doing for me. And so my prayer life has changed. But another incredible thing changed is I've always loved Athena. But somehow through all of this, I just... I lost the expression of it in the ways that when we were going together, I mean, I was so crazy in love with that girl. I would work. I'd get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, work all day, drive to Boise, stay there at her parents' house, visiting with her till 11 or 12 o'clock at night, drive all the way back out to CUNA, get three or four hours of sleep, and go out and work the next day. And I'd do that seven days a week. And I, I was romantic. I uh, sang love songs to her. How many of you know, where do I begin to tell the story of how great a love can be? That great love story that is older than the sea. It's a beautiful song. Andy Williams, go on YouTube and listen to it. Play it for your wife. You'll bless her heart. <laughs> and I sang many of these songs. And it was like, as I, this work began to accelerate in my life, it was like the feeling that I had 48 years ago when I married her started coming back into my heart. And one morning, I got out my phone, and I played. I can't sing anymore. I, I wanted to bless her. So I, I got out Andy Williams and played Where Do I Begin? Then I went to, to um, oh, what's the guy with the gravelly voice? The lady, my lady. That's another beautiful love song. She's my lady. And I played four or five or six of them, and it was just like, Wow. This is how I felt 48 years ago. And we've been on a honeymoon for about two months now. So I'd just like to say this one thing. If you're fighting something and you're losing the battle and you're trying to fight it by yourself, stop that strategy right now. It doesn't work. That was my big mistake. But back in the time that I grew up in Christianity, it was like if you even mentioned the word sexual sin, it was like you were strung up high and dry right there. Boom. It was all over. And I just kept saying to myself, I've got to win this battle on my own. I've got to win this battle. I mean, if I, don't, if I tell somebody my ministry's over, I've got to win the battle. I never won the battle until my ministry was over. Then I won the battle. So just don't stay. Don't keep trying to fight the battle by yourself. There are people in this church that love you and care about you, and they will help you win the battle. Let's thank, let's thank Ron. You know, I, 
That, that's obviously a real and a, a raw story, um, you know, but Jesus is in the real and the raw and the vulnerable and the ugly and the dark. And uh, we live in a world that has this beautiful facade with so much pain right beneath the surface. So I just want to honor it. took a lot of courage and, uh, and guts to come and bear before uh, hundreds and hundreds of people. So, yeah, we just thank you, Ron. Yeah. Uh, and we have one, one last testimony, and that is uh, Riley Verner. He's a revival group leader in our church, and he's also my, my younger brother. And uh, we actually, one of the elders in our church had a dream about him standing here and, and sharing this today with all of you. And that's uh, one of the reasons we're doing these testimonies. So let's uh, just welcome Riley and let him share. It's a joy to be here, and I, I might have a, a little bit of a hard time getting through because it's truly the redemptive, redemptiveness of Jesus that I stand here. I, I, I love Easter. I think about the first story of the Easter morning, and it was Peter, you know, having denied Jesus two days before, and like knowing his need was like sprinting to the tomb. Because he knew he like needed, he needed to know, and that's how I feel. Like I just feel like I'm, I'm Peter. Like I needed Jesus, and he came for me. And I want to bring you into a little bit of, of how he came for me. I grew up in a, an amazing home. Truly, I have an amazing mother, an amazing brother, an amazing father, and uh, an amazing little brother. But we had pain knock on our door when I was about 15 years old, um, and it came knocking hard. And I had a tendency for the first 15 years of my life that when things got difficult, I just shut down, and I pushed people away. It was my MO whenever anything got hard, and nothing changed. The night that uh, things kind of broke open, I took off down the street in our neighborhood at 10 o'clock at night with just shorts and a t-shirt on, the dark of night with no shoes, and I just started sprinting down the road. My feet hurt so bad as I was just sprinting, but the pain was so strong that I, at that moment, I, I thought I could outrun it. I thought I could get away from it if I just kept running, and that was a picture of what my life looked like for the next year. As things got difficult, I just kept running, and I shut myself off, and it was, it started with, with friends, and then it, you know, then it came to my brothers, and then it came to my mother, and to the point where I had shut the world out because I had experienced pain, and my heart knew it couldn't experience pain like that anymore. And so mm, the way that I knew how to keep myself from ever experiencing pain was to shut my heart off and not let anybody ever come into my heart again and have a place like that. You know, unfortunately, what that creates is a lot of isolation. And isolation is the breeding grounds for the lies of the enemy. And that's simply what happened in my life. As I had nobody to speak truth into my life because I shut myself off, the voice of the enemy became the loudest and the clearest voice in my life. 
and I lost all joy, I lost all hope, I lost all, I was a happy-go-lucky kid, I loved life, I loved my family, I loved my friends, but I quickly came to a point where I didn't feel emotions and I could care less what they thought or what they were feeling or how I was acting was making them feel. And so I went on a pretty, about a six-month absolute spiral um, in my life, and it got me to a point of desperation pretty quickly. Being in a position, and if you've been there and you've struggled with it, to not feel emotion and to feel numb, when things happen and you know you should feel something, but there's nothing there, it's quite honestly the scariest thing in the world. If you don't have emotion, it really makes you question why you're living. And that's where I went. I went to a place that got pretty dark and I ended up trying to take my life twice um, and God stepped in both times. Um, that's all I can say. I don't need to go into the details, but the sovereign hand of God saved my life. Um, I didn't deserve it. I didn't do anything to deserve him to step in. But he did in his grace and his kindness. And even then, you know, I just kept my heart hard. You know, and you'd think two experiences like that within two months would, would break you. But it didn't. Um, and so I made a decision to God, if uh, you're not going to let me die, then I'm going to leave. And so my mom and my dad and Jordan were actually visiting college and my grandparents were staying with me and my little brother, and at 11 o'clock at night, I Googled, where's the farthest place I can go from Boise without a passport? And uh, my options were Puerto Rico uh, and Guam. And so I went down to my parents' bedroom where my grandparents were sleeping, and I wrote down my grandpa's credit card number, went back upstairs, and got on kayak.com, and bought my one-way ticket to Guam for six hours later. Um, spend about 1800 bucks. I tell you, don't wait till the last minute to book your tickets. It's, <laughs> they, they really get you there, you know. No, they got my grandpa at least, not me. <laughs> but so six hours later, I was on the flight um, and left a note saying, don't look for me. I'll come back when I'm ready. Uh, I've got to somehow get out of this pain, thinking that once again, I could somehow run from it. Uh, long story short, I ended up getting arrested in Portland and put in juvie, and my parents had to fly and come get me, whatnot. Um, long, and so ended up back in Boise um, and got to this kind of this point where I was just like, God, you didn't let me die. I couldn't get away. I can't run. Pain is still so intimate, and it's so present, and I, I didn't know what to do. Um, I, the, the verse about how Israel, you know, hardened their heart in the wilderness, it's like that was the picture of what I was doing, and I kept my heart quite hard um, until there was a moment my parents were going on a trip to, uh, to I think, Mexico, and uh, my, Jordan took them to the airport at like five o'clock in the morning, and I, uh, I was still sleeping, and then I get a call 30 minutes, 40 minutes later, and it's my mom on the phone, and she says, Riley, you know, we left, they had gotten like a bank envelope with, with cash out for the trip, 
And she was in uh, quite deep despair. And she said, Riley, I need you to wake up and I need you to go look for this envelope. Um, like, I need you to go find it and I need you to race it to the airport because we're probably not gonna go on this trip unless you find it. And then I remember she said, Riley, I need this trip. And so I was like, okay, I got up. I was a little bit annoyed, but I, she's like, okay, go check the office, go check my bedroom, go check the living room. I look and I can't find it. And we had a, a wood burning fireplace and she said, go check by the fireplace. My dad was paying bills the night before and was like throwing them in the fire after he paid them. And she's like, look in the fireplace. And so I, I like look in the fireplace and it's a bunch of ashes. And she's like, okay, go back into the office, look in the office. And so I literally, I just scoured our whole house. And she, then she says, Riley, stop. She said, just stop. She said, I need you to open up your heart to God and allow him to show you where this money is. And I was like, my response was like, no, I, I don't want to open my heart up to God. Like, just, I'll keep looking. <laughs> like, why do I need to open my heart up to God? I'm just trying to find an envelope with some $100 bills in it. <laughs> like, and she said, Riley, just pray this after me. God, I open up my heart to you. Will you show me where this envelope is? And I swear to you, I just, I just prayed that prayer. I, I, I probably 95% didn't even mean it. I just said it to appease her. Like maybe 5% of me was like, maybe you'll like show me where this envelope is if I pray this prayer. And right as I pray it, my mom says, go back and look in the fireplace. I think it's in the fireplace. And I kid you not, I walk back to the fireplace full of ashes and on top of the ashes is an envelope with like $100 bills with a little bit of like burn phrase on the top. I don't think about it, I just grab the money, I just get in the car and I drive and go take it to them. Next day, I, I was at church with just Jordan and a friend of mine, and it was during worship, and uh, I couldn't tell you that I'd heard the audible, or, or heard not audible out, out loud, but just that the voice of God before in my life. And during worship, the, the presence of God came down on me, and I heard God say to me three times, he said my name, Riley Allen Verner. I'm with you and you're gonna be okay. Riley Allen Verner, I'm with you and you're going to be okay. And I'll tell you in that moment, I was met by love himself. I was met by the love of God in a way that, that I had never known up until that moment. And I give all credit to the fact that I prayed that prayer the morning before. And I said, God, I open up my heart to you. I give you permission. You know, in the Bible it says that if you hear the voice of God today, don't harden your heart. And I made that decision. And that was 12 years ago that God met me and I fell on my face on the floor of the church and I wept for the first time in probably eight months. And I felt for the first time in eight months. And I tasted hope for the first time. And I'll tell you what, is what I tasted in that moment, it was so pure. It had so much life on it that I had given the rest of my life to respond to it. That moment in my life, I have not looked back 
the hardest days of my life have been since then. The absolute hardest. But I encountered a love that day, and that love has continued to pursue my heart, and that love has continued to search my heart and purge out every bit of it that, does, that hasn't known how loved it is. And while God saved me from death and from running away from my pain, I honestly can tell you that the greatest miracle of my life has been the last 12 years, waking up morning by morning, encountering the love of God, and finding and seeing him bring my heart back to life, and to coming into a place of knowing that I'm a son, and that I'm beloved, and that I'm enough, and that I'm worthy, and that he gave his life for me simply because he loved me, not because I could bring anything that was adequate enough in response. That's truly been the greatest miracle of my life. And the miracle of the cross has been something that, yeah, he saved my life in a moment, but what he's done over the course of time, I'll give it all. I'll give it all, Jesus. That's like the only response I've had is that God, I'm not perfect, but I'll give it all to you. Because I tell you what, is when you taste of Jesus, and when you taste of the love of the Father, you can't but say, God, I'll give it all for this. Because I can look and I can search far and wide, and I can look in every crevice of this world, but I guarantee you, you will not find anything like the love of God. And when you taste and see how good he is, it's I'll give it all to you. I won't hold back a thing from you. My whole life is yours. And so I just, I testify tonight that that's the story of my life. It's the grace of God. I didn't deserve it. But I'll tell you what, I did respond to it. I did respond to it. And so I just, yeah, I just publicly say, man, what an opportunity it is that each and every one of us. I had given my, I had even given my life to Jesus as a young boy. But that day, 12 years ago, I surrendered. And I said, it's all for you. And so, what a gift it is today. The resurrected king. That's who we get to serve. The one who heals us, who restores us. He doesn't just save us. He doesn't just get us across the finish line limping. He empowers us. He strengthens us. And he gives us everything we need to walk victoriously. Amen. 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 You can sit. Amen. All right, so we're going we're gonna to close with uh, baptisms here in a minute, uh, but, and the kids are going to come in, and we're going to kind of have a, a party, but before we do, I want to do a couple things, and the first is just give space for you in this room uh, to publicly testify to the resurrection in your own life, and so I'm just going to call out some things, and I just want you to stand if this is true of what God has done in you, and so uh, let's just start with uh, your, your generational story. Uh, if you are a first-generation Christian or, or, and God has broken generational bondage in your life and you're writing, living an entirely new story from anyone in your family line before you, I just want you to stand and give witness to the resurrection. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Praise God. Praise God. You can be seated. Yeah, if God has delivered you from a, 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 an incurable disease or a terminal illness in your life, I just want you to stand and give witness to the resurrection. Uh, yeah. 
Hallelujah. 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 Uh, God has delivered you from uh, a bondage to alcohol addiction. I just want you to stand and give witness to the resurrection. Yeah. Worthy are you, God. Worthy is the Lamb. Yeah. If God has saved your marriage from crisis and the brink of, of destruction, I just want you to stand and give witness to the resurrection. Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. If God has delivered you from, uh, from sexual addiction in your life, I want you to stand and give witness to the resurrection. Praise you, God. Praise you, Jesus. Worthy Jesus. Worthy Jesus. I'm so wrecked, I don't even know what to say right now. <laughs> oh, wow. I, I want to give just an invitation. I know there's lots of things we could stand, but I, I want to give an invitation that if you do not know Jesus, and uh, you want to enter into the power of the resurrection in an entirely new life. Uh, I just feel the heart of Jesus is just inviting to just, his arms are open and he just says, come to me. And uh, if you find yourself in any place of anything that any person's testified and you just wanna give, you wanna respond to Jesus and you want to leave this old life that is less than the life that God has made for you. Uh, I just, I don't wanna give you an opportunity right now. And it's not about emotion and feeling, but it's about maybe something deeper. And so if, if that's you and you just wanna say yes to Jesus tonight and you wanna step in to a resurrection reality, I just want you to stand right now as to just say yes to Jesus. Yeah. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Yeah, thank you, God. Yeah, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. If, if you could, could you just come forward? Yeah, if you, if you could, could you just come forward if you stood? Yeah, maybe just, just come up here. Yeah, thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah, is, is there anybody else that you just, you just feel something stirring on the inside of you right now, and you just feel like you want to respond? I just, I just feel the compassion of Jesus for, if that's you, just, just respond and come forward. But uh, yeah, I just, I'm just wrecked right now. I'm just going to ask everybody, if you can just just close your eyes, and I'm just going to pray over you, and I'm just going to invite you to just pray a prayer right now, and I believe that the power of God's in this place. Yeah, so we just, uh, maybe, maybe everyone just pray this with our, these five brothers, God. Yeah, we just say, Lord Jesus, we open our hearts to you, and we give you permission to come in and cleanse us of our sin and wash away all the death, wash away all the darkness, 
Wash away all the pain. Wash away all the bondage. And make me a new creation. I invite you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. To wash me in your love. And to make me new. And I pray that in the name of Jesus. Yes, amen. And Father, I just pray over each one of these five men. We just say yes to what you're doing. And we just ask for resurrection power to come upon them right now. God, we just ask that, that salvation, God, the miracle of salvation, that you do a deep, deep work. God, like what you did in my mother 44 years ago that you do a miracle on the inside tonight that changes them from the inside, God, and ushers them into a new reality, that generations are being changed tonight, God, by the power of your blood. And we just give you honor tonight, Jesus. Let's just praise God, and we just, yeah, we just thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing. Hallelujah. Bless you all. Yeah. Um, you want to just meet them over there? And if you, you guys can just exit over here, and, and Pastor Robin's going to follow you. And just, um, I, I do want to say, we're gonna, so we're going to do baptisms right now to all five of you. If any of you would like to get baptized, you can get baptized. Um, we have 13 people that have decided to get baptized tonight. We're going to have just a little time of worship. The, the kids are here. Are you okay if we just have a little Jesus party for a few more minutes here on Easter? Um, uh, before we jump into baptisms, uh, we do just want to give an invitation that if anybody is feeling led by the Spirit in this moment, uh, baptism is simply just a public confession of an internal reality that says, I am ready to give my entire life to Jesus Christ, and I want to tell it in front of the church. And if God is moving upon you and you want to get baptized, we believe this is a holy moment. Uh, these 13 are going to begin, and if you want to get baptized, you can actually just just come up here to the, the front left over any time this and just say you want to get baptized. And we actually have uh, we have clothes. We have like black T-shirts and some shorts and we have extra towels so we can we can facilitate any of those practical needs. But if you're wanting to get baptized tonight and you feel prompted by the spirit, uh, we just believe that resurrection life is in this room and that the power of God is here. And if he is inviting you into that, just respond to heaven, respond to Jesus. And we're going to let God God's reality come to earth tonight as we worship his name and uh, we perform uh, these baptisms. Amen. Amen. So if, if you just want to respond, I'm going to have you all just stand up. We're going to worship God as we close tonight. If you would like to get baptized, we're just going to invite you to come up here to my left and uh, someone will meet you there. Uh, Shana, wherever you are, you'll see it right here. Uh, just come talk to Shana if you want to get baptized. And we're just going to uh, go into a time of worship and celebration of the new life in Jesus.